Whoever was the first to say, "'Tis better to give than to receive," obviously never was up for an Oscar. Now they're wonderful. They all have their Oscars. But are they happy? Hello! And welcome back to the Snub Club, the podcast where we talk about the movies that have the most Oscar nominations and no wins whatsoever. I am your host, Danny Vincent, uh, and I have no jokes. No jokes. No jokes. No jokes. Mrs. Robinson, no jokes. No jokes. I'm Sarah. This is my COVID episode. It happened. I remember my COVID episode. I'm Kayla Bunn. Like a ballerina bun. Oh, yeah. Yay, someone made a joke. It was Sarah for Kayla, but it's okay. All right. We've made it to a groundbreaking episode. Not our 50th movie, of course, because we have so many ties, but we've made it to the 50th Academy Awards. And this is actually very cool, Oscars, because um, not uncommon, but it is always cool that there were three films with double-digit nominations. The first film that got 11 nominations was Julia, which won Best Supporting Actor for Jason Robards, Best Supporting Actress for Vanessa Redgrave, and Best Adapted Screenplay. But then there was another film with 11 nominations and no wins, which will be what we're talking about today. The Turning Point. Now, Sarah, please enter your long spiel while you have COVID of everything The Turning Point was nominated for. All right. Well, it's nominated for Best Picture and Lost to Annie Hall, Boo. Uh, Best Director for Herbert Ross, Lost to Woody Allen for Annie Hall, Boo. Uh, Herbert Ross was also nominated for Best Picture this year. Best Actress for Anne Bancroft. She lost to Diane Keaton for Annie Hall. Anne Bancroft was nominated three more times and won for The Miracle Worker in 1963. Also for Best Actress, Shirley MacLaine. She was nominated three more times, including for Best Documentary. uh, And she won for Terms of Endearment in 1984. Best Supporting Actor for Mikhail Baryshnikov. He lost to Jason Roberts for Julia. Best Supporting Actress for Leslie Brown. She lost to Vanessa Redgrave from, for Julia. Best Original Screenplay for Arthur Lawrence. Uh, he lost to Marshall Brickman for... Uh, Marshall. I, I didn't put his name. Marshall Brickman and Woody Allen for Annie Hall. Uh, Arthur Lawrence was also nominated for Best Picture this year. Uh, best Art Direction for Albert Brenner and Marvin March. They lost to John Barry, Norman Reynolds, Leslie Dilley, and Roger Christian for Star Wars. Uh, they were both nominated four more times. Best Cinematography for Robert Surtees. Uh, he lost to Vilmo Sigmund for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, he's nominated 12 more times and won three. Best Film Editing for William H. Reynolds, who lost to Paul Hirsch, Marshall Lucas, and Richard Chu for Star Wars. Uh, he was nominated four more times and won two. And best sound for Theodore Soderbergh, Paul Wells, Douglas O. Williams, and Jerry Jost. Uh, they lost to Don McDougal, Ray West, Bob Winkler, and Derek Ball for Star Wars. Soderbergh was nominated four times. Wells was also nominated for The Rose in 1980. Williams was nominated two more times and won one for Patton in 1971. Now, there was a lot of things that happened at the 50th Academy Awards. The big thing was, of course, that there was a race in the sound category between Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where Star Wars won. But Star Wars got, and the Close Encounters of the Third Time, Kolf got special achievement Oscars for Ben Burt and Frank Warner. Also, Charlton Heston won the Humanitarian Award. And one thing happened that night that was super controversial and very topical. And that is that when Debbie Boone performed You Light Up My Life, accompanied by schoolgirls that were supposed to be interpreting the sign language in sign language. However, the sign language was considered incomprehensible, and then it was revealed that these girls were not deaf and had been taught rudimentary signing specifically just for the performance. This led to a prompt 
protests by the Alliance for Deaf Artists. Now, those are definitely the only topical things that happened at the Academy Awards, right? Don't be a coward. Right? Surely nothing else happened. Surely nothing else. Wait, you're telling me something else happened, Sarah? Something what else happened? did happen. Well, I'll I'll briefly sum it up. <laughs> you seem like you wanted to bring it up. So well, like, I just think it's. It. A, I don't. I mean, we don't have to give our personal opinions on it. Uh, basically, Vanessa Redgrave won Best Supporting Actress. Uh, it was very controversial because she was in a film called The Palestinian. Uh, and at the time, the Palestine Liberation Organization. Yeah, but she starred in it, which is strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. I'm just like saying, like, to be clear, this was a documentary. She the Palestine oh. Liberation Organization uh, was considered a terrorist organization by Israel. Uh, a lot of people thought that the movie was anti-Semitic, anti-Israel. Members of the Jewish Defense League picketed Redgrave's nomination. Uh, when she won, she made a speech where she basically said that Jewish people should not, uh, they should stand up to fascism. She said something, she said like, she said the behavior of Zionists were an insult to the stature of Jews all over the world and their hero- great and heroic record of struggle against fascism and oppression. She said she, she was standing up against Nixon and McCarthy. She's standing up against anti-Semitism and fascism. Um, she got applause. She got booze. Patty Shevsky. Yeah, this guy. So Patty Shevsky, who I'd previously won for whatever. Uh, network. For Network. Uh, announced the screenplay awards and he said that uh Academy Awards is too political. Stop being political the Academy Awards. The person who made Network said that? <laughs> um basically he just said that he said I'm sick and tired of people exploiting the occasion of the Academy Awards for the propagation of their own personal political propaganda. I would like to suggest to Ms. Redgrave that her winning an Academy Award is not a pivotal moment in history, does not require a proclamation and a simple thank you would have sufficed. So kind of topical. It kind of makes it to me makes me think. I do think I think I think it's personal, per, not personal. Per, uh, it'd be important to mention that um, not to like because I feel like the way we're presenting it right now it sounds like Patty Chayefsky did this specifically. He's like, I'm done with politics here. I'm done with cancel culture. When in fact <laughs> it's because he's Jewish and he was like, I'm disturbed of you making these cracks against Jews in the community. That's literally what it says. And like, there's a quote. That says he perceived this as cracks about Jews, and then in his speech, he's like, "I must live with myself tomorrow and say this." I'm just saying, like, I mean, I get why all of what he said. I'm just feeling like, like we're maybe we're presenting this like he's like the cancel culture in Hollywood. No, I mean, I would recommend reading her speech. (laughs) I get why he would feel that way because she does specifically mention like the good Jews, but that not like that, not like that. But it's just like. (laughs) It makes me look at all of us over here being not Jewish talking about this. Well, it's not. I mean, you don't have to be Jewish to talk about it. It's just like it's true. It's true. It just I don't know. It makes me wonder what will happen this year or this upcoming Academy Awards, because I think there's still obviously some tension depending on, you know, what you believe. And I'm curious because. Both sides are saying this side is censoring this side and then side is censoring this side. So it's very, I'm very curious to see if anybody will speak on it or if the Academy Awards should be not political. I don't know. What if Christopher Nolan goes up and goes like, I made a movie about a witch hunt and here we are in Hollywood right now. I'm still waiting for Sean Penn to to boil his Oscar down. (laughs) (laughs) That's how the Oscar should begin. With him walking out and go like, what are you doing? There's been a lot less draws here, but Barbie, best picture? All right, here it goes. <laughs> That's the final straw. <laughs> I will say I have my own opinions on this whole thing. I would highly recommend everybody to look into it, uh, find sources that you trust, wherever that may be. Um, just look into the history a little bit, if you so choose to. I think uh, all three of those podcasts are all pretty much in the same boat, too. In case you're worried that that's why we're not talking about it. Listen, it's one of those things where if I start talking about that's what the episode's going to be. I so. know, me too. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, go see um, In the Heights on HBO Max. Uh, screams 1 through 6. 
will always exist if you like them all. Um, and of course, tip, tip your waitresses. Also, Blue Beetle's on HBO Max, too, if you want to support what? someone else. Okay. <laughs> um, we don't necessarily need to support that person, but that's fine. <laughs> right. I was like, interestingly, how Blue Beetle has their legacy. <laughs> anyway, uh, the turning point. Or do we want to synopsisize it, or do we want to go straight into our uh, This was a movie where I kept being convinced there was going to be a pregnancy scare in the plotline, and it never happened. Um, it's about a girl who is a great ballet person and her mom was a great ballet person, but she had to give it up to go have a family. And she gets, the daughter gets accepted to this great ballet academy in New York City. And they go, well, let's wife swap then with the, the wife in charge of the, um, thing. There's and a, then they do. there's a, Anne Bancroft plays a woman that was the, uh, kind of competitor to Shirley MacLaine's character, who is the mother. And she takes on a mentor role of the daughter. And while Shirley MacLaine's character kind of deals with her uh, regrets over not being able to continue her ballet career. Also, Anne Bancroft's character is at the end of her career, too, which factors into the uh, how things go. She wishes that she could be a ballet, but she can't. Ballerina. Ballerina. Yeah, 11 nominations. <laughs> I will say, I feel like so part of this movie, I think part of the reason why this movie, I think there are a few factors as to why this movie got the nominations that it got. It was an autobiographical movie. The daughter bit played herself, basically. So that was a stunt casting. You had Mikhail Baryshnikov, who was a famous ballerino. So that was a stunt casting. You had, there was a lot of like who was going to play who. They were going to get like, you know, Grace Kelly and Audrey Hepburn and all kinds of people. But they ended up getting a professional dancer, uh, Shirley, McC- Shirley McLean, who does no dancing, and Anne Bancroft. Shirley McLean, though. We love Shirley McLean. I'm going to be honest, I don't. <laughs> I don't really like Shirley McLean that much. I think she's kind of whiny. Oh no, she plays characters that cries. Let's blame her for her <laughs> career. Okay, I see. But I think, but there's a reason why she keeps playing those roles. I'm just saying. <laughs> Danny, what Caleb, you break think? the tie on Shirley McLean. I still love her. I, I, I want to know your thoughts on the movie first. My thoughts? Uh, let me pull up my review on my phone because I watched this movie four days ago. I have <laughs> so we're gonna see specific how much I criticisms remember. about it. But I'll let you go mm, first. Trolls Band Together is a mod. Oh, this is the wrong review. Uh, just, uh, I thought the performances were good. I thought the drama was solid, but it never really transcends it. It's just kind of generic. Uh, I thought it's great at asset, and this is what I kind of referred to earlier. Is that it kind of just remains in this very grounded area. It never really goes big. It just stays within these characters. Uh, as always, I like when movies know how to dance and shoot it well. And I said this about Funny Lady. And I say it here. I think Herbert Ross knows how to shoot dance. So I enjoy watching the dance sequences in it. And I thought Shirley McLean was good. You should um, make a movie about dance with Kevin Bacon a little bit later in his career. I know, I think I mentioned it, if I remember right, I mentioned it in the Funny Lady episode because I forgot he was directing this. Also, I gotta say, about this movie, about Turning Point, is that Herbert Ross directed in the same year The Goodbye Girl, which, you know, was nominated for stuff too, which is why it's funny to me that this got, like, the attention for him, because I feel like that was a better-directed movie, definitely, (laughs) having seen The Goodbye Girl this year. (laughs) Not that you guys have seen The Goodbye Girl, but, like, Maybe I have. Yeah. You don't know. Have you? No. Let me check Letterboxd. But you didn't know. Letterboxd is Letterbox. not infallible, Danny. <laughs> um, okay. So that Sarah gave so, Wish zero stars. I did. Oh, wait, you have two and a half. My bad. Anyway, go on. When we finish with this podcast project, I'm going to look back on however many movies we end up watching. 
And most of them are just going to be whatever. Like either I didn't like them or they're just okay or they didn't resonate me with for any reason. There are going to be two or three that we revisited, like It's a Wonderful Life, that hold up. And then there will be some classics that I'll remember either because I didn't like them or because they lived up to their reputation. Then there are going to be some that I would have never watched if it wasn't for this podcast, and I'll be deeply grateful. Dead End is one of those. Nun Story is one of those. And the latest one is The Turning Point. I love this movie. I'm going to try to not be super hyperbolic about it, but I think this is amazing. I, I actually would prefer if you were, because Sarah seems neg, and I well, feel like I watched it three days ago. I didn't. I liked it in the sense of like, it felt like kind of a precursor to like a fame, to like that kind of like very fly on the wall, like, you know, that type of thing. I have a major issue with the writing. The writing I thought was very clunky. I thought a lot of the writing was exposition. I thought a lot of it was like, as you know, we're married. We have three children. Like there was one line specifically where the creative director was like, I'm the creative director of the ballet. Like it just felt very like, I felt like the writing was a little bit clunky. That was my big criticism. I also have one thing about the ending that I wish, I just, I kind of agree. I wish that there was a little bit more drama. I wish the ending went in a place that it did not go. But for the most part, I didn't hate it. I didn't, I would even say that I liked it a little bit. This film does hold the record for most nominations with no wins. This is a snub club record. Uh, there are some movies that have matched this record since then, but this is the record. I was about to say, I thought so. our next movie was one of those, but. Well, the next one has the uh, the reputation of being because the next one is the more well known film. Okay, and it's the one that more people are like, "Huh, that didn't win anything," you know. So, um, to go off your point, Sarah, about the writing, um, this may have been a thing where it's just I really liked the acting, and especially between McLean and Bert and uh, Bancroft. Um, any scene they had together, I was glued. Uh, and of course, large portions of this are just straight ballet, which is, I think, shot very well and is uh, very integral to the uh, emotional momentum of the film. But I don't know. I really like the writing. I felt It felt very real. It felt very honest. It felt like conversations that I've had. Obviously, I'm not a, ballet, a ballerina, um, and I'm not in the middle of like the end of my career or reflecting on the end of my career. But this reminds me of you know questions and comments and conversations I've had with people whenever I've looked back on my relationships, uh, my decisions that have led me to this point in life. I don't know. I, I've I've found the writing to be very uh, believable. I was just relieved it didn't become about pregnancy. Well, she was on the pill. Yeah, well, I thought that part was kind of strange. I'm just gonna say, I'm just not to get too into it, but I feel like my mom did not react that way the first time that I told her I'd (laughs) suck. Well, actually, I thought that was really interesting Um, because I do think obviously these people exist in like a liberal arts world where like being gay is just something that's assumed and stuff. Like you know what I mean? It's very more progressive than what you expect from a film in that scene. The the 70s is around where we're getting this to be expected. I guess I shouldn't say that anymore, but like you know, something where it's like. Oh, that's it's something where it's like I could see like people in the Midwest going to see this movie like oh, these New York elites, you know, um, but I didn't have an issue with that because of the family setup being like her parents are both ballerine. Da- ballet yeah, I mean, dancers. I thought it fit like the dynamic that they had. I just thought it was interesting. <laughs> well, yeah. also, Shirley MacLaine's character, Dee Dee, she says that she sees herself as her daughter's friend and she never says anything about being her mother other than she has regrets about becoming a mother. Um, although those aren't specific to her daughter, um, or they're not personal towards her daughter. Um, so I feel like part of it also is that, and this might play into all her, um, her not being able to let go of the past is that she might just not be bothered with it because she wants to be kind of like the cool mom or, you know, more of a peer than a parent. Her arc is like, she wants to be a cool mom. She wants to be the friend. And then Anne Bancroft starts to be kind of a mother figure. 
And then she notices and she's like, I thought this was my job, even though she didn't really want it as her job. And it's kind of like what Anne Bancroft got at the beginning was what she really wanted. But now what she has is what Anne Bancroft really wants. So they've switched places kind of. And it's just a classic grass is always greener story. And at the end, they fight, and it's nice. So, it sets up. The, the film begins with Shirley MacLaine and her family in the suburbs of, I think it's Oklahoma City. Um, but it, it's very much set within their domestic sphere. Before, And, and we slowly see um, Shirley MacLaine like, reintroduced into the company. Um, the ballet company that she left. And that, of course, culminates in these conversations that she has with Anne Bancroft's Emma. And that leads to her daughter gain the part. So they go to New York and various things happen. Um, we follow the daughter's story. We pick up on a couple other dancers in the troupe. Um, she has an affair. But I find. I found interesting was that there was, and you, I think you said something like this. There was very little drama, but that's almost a sticking point to me up until they have that fight. Their conversations are very low key. They are each kind of holding certain things back, but in a way that's like, they clearly want to protect their friendship. And then once you get to that fight, it's, it goes for a while and it starts out. And I love how it's written with the this kind of analogy of like what she's holding on to in relation to these fairy tales that they told Amelia growing up but then when they do when it does turn into a physical fight that is where the film kind of slips for a moment and I'm like this is almost too melodramatic I feel like I kind of, I mean, I knew that it was never going to go in this direction, but part of me really, really wanted it to. I really, I kind of wanted it to be like this very, like, I don't know. I kind of wanted it to be sort of like a whiplashy type ending where like Emma has been setting up Amelia, the daughter, like for humiliation the whole time and kind of like a revenge plot. I don't know why, like, I, I think because... <laughs> I think this this came from when they did the the when she does her ballet and it's like the no feelings dance like she's not allowed to have any emotions and I was like this is kind of weird like is, are people gonna get this but then it turned into this huge success but I was like hmm what if she's sabotaging I just I I don't know I think I just made up a more interesting <laughs> idea yeah and I mean you know like when you if you want like rival ballerinas and or just any kind of rival artists there are a lot of those movies and stuff and there there are probably some that are more compelling than this but i don't know i really like that it was just like purely the the fractures in an adult friendship and that's the only place that drama could come through but because they're adults and they're handling this diplomatically up until they aren't it isn't like there isn't any big revelations or anything like that. Yeah, I think it's a very of the time movie because I think having that very dramatic ending is a very modern day sort of convention and I think sort of it, the plot just kind of settling I think is very very 70s, 80s. I mean, I guess. I don't know. To me, the plot is the afterthought here. I don't give a shit about these people. I care about the dancing. The dancing is beautiful. The dancing's well shot. Every time the dance happens, you know, I have to imagine this was very revolutionary for a time. I imagine people sitting down in 1977 and watching these scenes and going like, whoa, there's text on screen while they're dancing. It's like how I remember once someone told me they watched Star Wars and they were confused why there were all the little spaceships that were shaped like letters. Uh, I have to imagine that's how audiences felt watching this film. Um, but, you know, it's a cool stylistic choice to confuse your audience like that. And the dancing is really nice, and it looks beautiful, and it's like uh, it's like a concert movie, you know? 
Yeah, I love the dancing. I don't think that text on screen would confuse an audience because, like, <laughs> if they ever <laughs> silent almost never happened. Well, also just like <laughs> you turn on you turn on PBS and it's showing a ballet. It will have text on screen at the beginning. You watch any movie at the beginning, there's text on the screen. You watch okay, the, oh, my, you watch any movie from right, the very is, beginning. Okay, I'll, of admit, I'll admit, I'll admit, this is a dumb bit. I'll admit this is a dumb bit. That said, I, I push back on the idea like, well, people must have watched this on PBS because I don't know if, what PBS has established at this point in time, right? It was. Right? 1977, yeah. SP Street would have been on the air by now, wouldn't it? I thought you meant... Okay, never mind. Then. Never mind. I thought you were me. Sorry, I misread your point. I thought the point you were trying to make was they were showing like ballet concerts regularly on PBS. I'm sorry. Um, but no, I do really like the dancing in this movie. Um, I think the dancing is really well done. Uh, my bit was really bad. I apologize for it. Um, but I'm sorry. I, I just couldn't only, tell it was a bit. I, if it was a bit, I would have yes ended it. Or if I had known it was a bit, I would have yes ended it. Yeah, it. it was a bit, definitely. I, I felt like I was really just trying to stress it. Like, it must have been. I feel like my Star Wars anecdote was trying to get away of me being like, wow, yeah, those, those, those letter shaped spaceships. Why are we watching this fleet of spaceships go into the sky? But anyway, um, Anyway, um, I think the dancing is um, not only well shot, but I think it is simultaneously very smartly put together in the sense that um, there are no real tells that it's, it, it is a concert film, but it feels like it's just dreamy enough to exist in its, the film's language of itself. Um, and by that, I mean, it kind of evokes dream ballets in a sense also, even though that's obviously part of the narrative too. Sorry, it's obvious outside of the mer- narrative too, because it's also just here's what you're listening to audience enjoy some classic stuff you can look this up after the movie if you are randomly have a notebook with you i guess well it's also not like the entire ballet it's just like just enough it's like it's like a it's also like a clearly that's the thing that i was more thinking of watching is like if i'm putting on my cinema sins brain which isn't something i like to wear i'd be like <laughs> wow what a weird play they just keep doing two minutes from various operas <laughs> like, but it is a like the the main one is a gala, and like they're just showcasing what the season is going to have. That's um, a good point. Good point. I, I, I've been to the ballet once. I enjoyed it. I can't analyze dance just because I don't know anything about it. But I have watched a lot of experimental films in my life, and a lot of I used to help with a with our school's film festival and there are a lot of short films about dance that I've seen in my life um and obviously you can go purely uh from a recording standpoint an archival standpoint static camera pointed at a stage that is the closest if you want to capture like the essence of dance as its own art form but then as you're trying to bring it into filmmaking you're automatically compromising uh compromising what ballet is uniquely and forcing it to collaborate with the tools of filmmaking and i think about this a lot how that relates to motion because one of my favorite uh filmmakers maya darren this was her whole thing she was fascinated uh with how a camera could capture and could complement motion she did this with dance she did this with uh, martial arts she did this with just surrealist uh, action and so when this film started i got a little disappointed because i'm so used to seeing very impressionistic very surreal very experimental ways of pairing the camera with the dancers and this begins with more static shots more in that archival space but i do think as it goes on and especially highlighted in that gala sequence there finds there's a really nice pairing of we're going to get just impressionistic enough we're just we're going to get just subjective enough that we can complement it while also showing off the amazing choreography and using that choreography to ground the stakes in this like when yuri's out there dancing it grounds the stakes of their relationship because you realize he's not just an asshole he's also an amazing dancer and so while she shouldn't be in a relationship with him, you understand her desire to want to dance with him. And I think that does that with all of the dances in that sequence. 
Sorry to monologue. No, you're okay. I'm trying. I'm going crazy right now, honestly. Uh, if I seem distracted, it's not because I'm tired or because I forgot this movie. It's because I'm trying to find the name of an actor that I really liked in it. And I'm realizing I should have written down the name of the character because I, you know, it's just kind of impossible to find. Well, who's know? the character? Uh, it's that whiny guy who's Arnold? like, ah, the what? Arnold? <laughs> the what? choreographer? Was he a choreographer? I thought he was a writer. I thought someone else was the choreographer. Oh, he's no, he comes up with the choreography for the modern dance segment that Amelia. Who was this character? Arnold. Arnold. The actor is in one other thing. He's in Greece, I think. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page. I think he was. I think he actually was a dancer. Ah, Daniel Levins. He's so good in this. He died. <laughs> I thought he was irritating. <laughs> he is irritating. <laughs> But I loved him. <laughs> He's so good. I feel like I, 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 part of this movie. I don't know how to break this to you, but I think most people in this movie are probably dead. I'm sorry. We we, we know one of these guys that was a We know two of these people are <laughs> no, alive. No. Actually, you, I might be wrong. <laughs> I really only think of Anne Bancroft. <laughs> She's oh, dead. I mean, like, we, 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 we know Tom Skerritt. And Charlie McClane's still do know vaguely him. working. We do know him personally. <laughs> Y'all want to talk he, made about a, when you... he made a somewhat problematic joke in front of us. I was thinking about that, how he got canceled on yeah, Live so, Whatever. Oh, I remember those, Sarah. I was like, I remember I was like, that was a little problematic. Sarah's like, who cares? He's an old man. Job, well, it wasn't even was that like, problem. Right, he was talking about, okay, so he. <laughs> we went we, to see a screen of Alien. We saw Alien, and he said that it was kinky that they had a woman as the lead <laughs> of an action movie. And I don't think that that's problematic. <laughs> He was just talking about the context of that time period. But then people on Letterboxd were like, he said this. Whatever. Tom Skerritt. Old man. With a gun. Tom Skerritt's also very good in this movie. I wanted actually more of him. You didn't really get to do too and much. Then, well, I did see on Wikipedia that, and I know, Mar- I know Caleb, I called you Mark for a second. I know you said, don't make this be a Wikipedia reading article, but I think this is the only thing that's interesting is that apparently a massive subplot that actually addressed what his sexuality was cut from the script, um, which makes sense why that character kind of disappears for long periods of time. I was, I have thoughts on that. I, I like that he was not in the movie a lot because it puts more focus onto Dee Dee and Emma's relationship. Um, but there is definitely some compet at the end of this film early and I like it's within the context of the story. So I don't think it's like, I think you can read it critically, but I don't think it's necessarily problematic, but his, his character, when he says, yeah, I had to have, I had to impregnate you because I needed to figure out if I was gay or not that, that sent me for, for a whole well, big see, thoughts. I, like I feel like that line, even though it'd be weird regardless, I feel like if it actually had like a subplot addressing it, like, and maybe that's like the climax of it. Like, the reveal of a line, it might it'd still be a weird line, but it at least would like work rather than just coming out and I was like, I had to impregnate your baby. Like, otherwise. see, I don't know. That was another one of those lines that I just thought was like too exposition y because he's like, I ruined your career. And it's like, all right, okay. <laughs> I um, and to be fair, I don't think he uses the word impregnate, <laughs> I think it's a little better than that. But yeah, it that is a weird, clunky scene. And like, you know, this is a movie that, that one of the characters is um, based on a, on a person who is bisexual. Um, they talk about the, uh, this is the so annoying. Under- I just Googled turning point transcript to try to find the exact line for you. Oh, and you got that. You got that, that <laughs> the Chris Evans thing. What? No, I got amphibia and then I got vampire diaries. I just want the movie. That was like, Sorry, a, isn't that a saying, Chris Cameron? Evans thing where he's like, he has a website that's like, this is what a Republican thinks. This is what a Democrat thinks. Oh, no, it's, um... <laughs> Anyways. Anyway, no. Anyway, there's a lot of... I shouldn't say there's a lot, but there is a presence, and it is kind of a nonchalant presence of queerness here, but it is, like, I do think it is definitely presented through a compet lens. Um and I don't know. I, I I don't want to subplot about it, but I feel like that's very honest to the time, and I appreciated it. 
Well, I think it's interesting that they, I think that it's definitely like, it's meant to be there to show like how different things have, like how much things have changed in the past 20 years. Because you have, you know, Mikhail Baryshkinikov, who's like the hunk, the dreamy guy. And they have a line specifically where they're like, he's going to get men into ballet. And then their son like plays baseball and does ballet, but he wants to do ballet. And it's like, it is meant to show that like, the idea of like men in this role is different. So it is kind of like, I kind of like that it's in the background, but it is kind of that idea that like Tom Scary's character too, like had he, his journey has also happened, you know, kind of behind the scene. I, yeah, it's, it's, it makes me, I don't want a subplot, but I would like a movie about or a documentary about, um, how both straight and, uh, gay and pan and bi and, you know, the, the various, uh, variations thereupon. I would be interested just to see how sexuality has intersected with ballet. Um, because like, obviously today there aren't kids who want to do baseball and ballet, like a bunch of them, right? Like it, it, it um, it isn't like a huge deal. And hopefully the, the scene is definitely more open to, uh, to gay and trans uh, dancers, but who knows? Like, I don't know enough about ballet, and I think that would be an interesting thing to kind of chart. Well, it is explored um, in the 2007 movie High School Musical 2. Uh, oh, yes. With the, Very true. <laughs> with the musical number I Don't Dance. The speaking of, speaking of masters of directing dance, Kenny Ortega. <laughs> Listen. Every pride I, I play, I don't dance. <laughs> I think you can. I know you can. Not a chance. <laughs> I really did think I was glad. I, I keep referring to things, but I kind of want to just actually like say it out. I because I want to say like where I thought the movie was going, and then it didn't. And then I felt like okay, cool. And then the movie became like a thirty-minute dance sequence, and I was like okay. Um, but there's a point where like our main character, Leslie. Brown, and the movie's name is Amelia Rogers. Um, starts seeing this guy named Yuri, and they 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 have sex, and then she gets sick a little bit, and it's like I was like, oh no, this is going to be something where it's like she got pregnant, and now she has to choose between what her mom did or what her dad did. She's drunk. Yeah, she doesn't get sick. Okay, well, let me tell you. And I she gets, she, she specifically gets drunk because she finds Yuri cheating on her. Which puts well, an end to their partnership <laughs> and leads look, to man, the, I was just told you where I was worried the movie was going and I was glad. Well, go ahead. Going. Keep going. Keep going. No, I was just, I feel like that would have been a really cliche plot line to go with. Like being like, oh, who, who does she, like, does she choose to follow her mom or does she choose to follow the anti mom? The cool ant. The the god cool ant. But I think um, that that also could have. I mean, when you think about the time, you think about the seventies. If she did get an abortion, I think that that would also be kind of a landmark thing. Yeah, and they openly talk mm-hmm. about the possibility of Dee Dee having gotten an abortion, which I found like that's definitely something that, like, thinking about Peyton Place and how like risque it was there. It's like, oh, this is very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just don't. I don't understand. I will say the, uh, the whole Yuri plot was uh, made up. This is, which is interesting. They cast someone to play a version of themselves, and then the majority of that plot is something that is made up. Um, but it does, it's an interesting place where she has to kind of come to terms with this relationship being over, but a professional relationship continuing because Yuri is, at least as presented in the film, the best male dancer in the group. And so near the end of the film, they have a, they reconcile. And I think you can read how much that reconciliation, how far that reconciliation goes. But they start to dance together again, and the final performance is 
um, kind of her big debut dancing alongside Yuri. What did y'all think about that? And specifically the scene where they were reconciling when Yuri shows absolutely no regret about cheating on her. Well, I will say, I do think I just to kind of, I will talk about that, but I do, I did think it was interesting, like how she was playing a version of herself. She's dancing with the, um, American ballet theater. She had joined in real life, you know, as this movie was getting, it was being filmed and she didn't become a principal dancer until almost 10 years later. So it was kind of manifesting in a way. I mean, I thought it was, I think that to me, I interpreted it as like she was kind of in a middle ground between the two women. I think that she sees the value in a professional partnership with him, but she also knows what like love feels like and she is potentially open to it in the future. I don't know. Um, I'll be real. I don't really remember this scene very clearly because, again, I feel bad coming to this episode watching it like three days ago. Um, that said, I do think it's an interesting thing to address in a film. Um, even I can't really address how this film addressed it because let me tell you, there have definitely been moments in my life, particularly I remember in school, where there'd be something like that where I wouldn't get in like a relationship with anyone or something like that. But, you know, or it, wouldn't, it doesn't have to be me, but it's like, you know, you see people going in and out of these relationships and it's like, well, shit, you're still playing lovers in the play. You know, you can't really uh, drop out on that, you know, and personally speaking, I've had that happen to me a couple of times now for relationships with people I've said, like asked out in the past, like I'll ask them out. I'll be like, nope. Well, that's awkward. Too bad. We still got to do this play like next week uh, where we're, we're a couple fight or a couple fighting. It's like, all right, we got to work through that then. Cause it's an assignment. Uh, I think it's interesting to address that. I wish I remembered how this film addressed it because I really am like, oh yeah, I guess that happened in this movie, you know. <laughs> like, I think they leave it. I think they leave a lot of cards on the table for you to figure out. Um, they kiss. She says it was nice. He tells her to smile. She doesn't smile, and then they start dancing, and that's the scene. And I think it's interesting what parts of that what parts of control she's giving over to him and what parts of control he's taking. I think, I, I don't know. I think that I could see a lot of different readings of this and I don't want to commit to one here because I feel like more, I, I feel like there's a lot of perspectives I could hear that would influence what I think and all of them would be valuable. Um, but I do think there's, I think you're right, Danny there. This is something that's happened a lot whenever you're collaborating uh, creatively, you're gonna butt heads, and sometimes sure happened to both of you guys in college too. At some point, not necessarily like a relationship or like a, like you know someone you're interested in relationship. But I'm sure there's been things where it's like um, you were working with a friend on something, and something came up where it's like, oh, I don't want to hang out with them anymore, but they're working with me. Oh yeah. yeah, I mean, our editor Joe on this podcast, me and Joe have been making stuff together since high school. We haven't always. I haven't always been happy with Joe. We've we, we've had tension. Joe, there just, time to chime in. This is your. This is your chance. <laughs> He's like, first of all, <laughs> just just because of how long we've been working together. Like there have been times yeah. when we've argued and stuff. But it's like, I think, I think we both have always had an, had a commitment to what we're making. And when we haven't, we've we've understood um, that our friendship is more important. Um, and we also, I don't feel like either of us really hold grudges, but that's also different because we're friends. We were friends before we started collaborating and stuff. This is, and I think that's what you see with, uh, with Dee Dee and Emma is that they have to work through their resentments and their envy so that they can remain friends. We're here. Um, you know, it, it's, she has to work through these things so that she can keep collaborating. It, it doesn't have to be a personal thing, but it definitely has to be a professional thing. Yeah, I was in a play uh, with somebody who. Danny Vincent. No, I was in a play with somebody, and they were very flirtatious towards me, and I was kind of like, eh, I don't know, maybe I don't know. Um, and then they told me that they were seeing someone, and we still had like another week left of the play, and we played Love Interest, and I was like, okay, this sucks. <laughs> And they, the pandemic happened, thankfully. But now I do work with this person in a professional capacity. But it is kind of like, like to them, it's just like, okay, this is like, it, I'm sure it's like not even on their radar. So for me, it's like, 
and again, it's like to me, it's like whatever. I found somebody else; it's not a big deal. But it is like I always do have that in the back of my mind where I'm like, "You did this to me." <laughs> well, maybe you can have a fight with them outside the Lincoln Center in 30 years' time or wherever well, they were. I hope for the that gala. I don't know them in 30 years' time. I'm gonna be honest. <laughs> Yeah, that I will say just off topic, that is one of the things I like about my new job. New job, I've had it for a while, but like new as job opposed, new me. Yeah. You know, don't have an emotional investment in the people there. Like I I know a couple people outside of work, but majority of these people, I see them on when I go into work and I don't think about them when I leave work, and that's perfect because you know, it would get a lot more complicated if there was an emotional thing. Um, and that was one of the super taxing things about working at church was because you're not only, not only are you going to have that because it's like a community as well as a workplace, but also you're expected to have it. Like it's part of the job is that you're emotionally mm-hmm. invested in people. And that wasn't for me. Uh, God bless you if you can do that. But I could not, have, I could not hold the professional and the emotional besides like the base level of empathy you need to like work with people. I couldn't hold those two things. Yeah, it's fair and valid. I think there's a lot of issues with being social at work. And a lot of times I wish I could work somewhere where, you know, I could just sit down from my computer, do data entry for hours and enjoy, enjoy like how I'm working on the snub club spreadsheet. And every time I'm like, we're going to have five actors again. We never do. Um, <laughs> I was really excited when Shirley came with this. Like, oh, surely, no pun intended. Surely she's been in this a lot that maybe she's up there. And I was like, this is only the second one she's done. Oh my gosh. We haven't had any in Bancroft. Yeah, we haven't had any in Bancroft. The only other person in this so far, although I wasn't done going through it when I got on here, there's someone in here who's in the one of the dancers was in the bandwagon. Otherwise, everyone else is only a two. Yeah. We do have like, um, we have like uh, several waiting in the wings to join the Five Timers Club. I think several of these people are dead by now too so who knows no potential guests for the podcast i will say i found the last, something out the last the last fourth person was pop was when we did bob and ted and carol and alice or whatever i and found something out about Anne bancroft recently that shook me to my core because obviously you know her as mrs robinson she's just in this she's very like she's i mean she's kind of a milf obviously she's i mean she's mrs robinson and she just seems very elegant, very put together. I found out recently she was married to Mel Brooks, which <laughs> is so strange to me. Not only did, not only were they married, but they were like really in love with each other. Hell yeah! <laughs> I just that's such a strange pairing to me. I need to see them together because I my impersonation of her is that she's very tall, and of course Mel Brooks is not a tall man. They're Not three, that height matters, but... They're in three things together. I know that. Hmm. I just... Uh, that's, I what mean, a strange I mean, they're, pairing. They're smiling in all these pictures. I know. They, like, they're so in love with each other. That's great. I love it. No, they, they seem to be the same height. Um, that's disappointing. Because yeah, this is the role that they were, they were like going to get... It was between Anne Bancroft and Audrey Hepburn. Like... That's the kind of role, like, that's the kind of roles that she does. I just, it shook me to my core. I tell you what. Oh, man, this is absolutely wild of the, just, not to bring everything to appearance, but man, this schlub. <laughs> All respect to Mel Brooks, great comedian, but the man. The schlub club. The schlub club. Let's, let's talk about schlubby guys and beautiful women. <laughs> Just uh, kidding. That goes to show that a good personality gets you a long way. I, I feel like y'all are tapped out on this movie. So do you, do we want to I'm just tapped out in general. It's been a long week, man. That's all. No, I, I I'm just tapped out in general. Sarah has COVID. I'm wiped <laughs> out from just running around everywhere. I'm I mean, I don't have because much to say about movie. this. I watched this movie three nights ago, which was a mistake, but it was also the only time I had to watch it. So Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. It's it's up to you guys. I mean, I could keep talking, but I'm just gonna probably keep talking about Anne Bancroft. So <laughs> she's great. She's great. I'm I, gonna probably start Wikipedia page, which means 
Caleb's going to kill me. I, I couldn't kill you, Danny. You're two states away. How could I do that? Um, you can no, send me can... a vial of Sarah's saliva in the mail. <laughs> and I'll just open it and all of a sudden I get COVID and die. Um, nah, I guess uh, closing out, I get why this movie isn't well-remembered. Or not well-remembered I mean, in the sense that people don't like it. Just why it's not remembered. This is a movie I that's... also think, to be clear, this is a pretty stacked year, right? We didn't really talk about it much because... This is the second most nominations, but like Annie Hall's kind of a heavy hitter. Star Wars. Even if it is, you know, Woody Allen, but you know, it is a heavy hitter, you know? I mean, boo, yeah, I agree. Um, Then, of course, Star Wars Close Encounters. A lot of big movies this year. Like, I get it. This is a movie that it's 40% dancing where nothing happens. But I don't know. I just really appreciated this, like, kind of examination of this adult friendship. And it made me think a lot about my own life. And I loved how the dancing was incorporated. I'm, I am glad I watched this. I hope Caleb gives it best picture just so it gets a place in history of being the film that beat star Wars. Um, okay. Hold up. Star Wars didn't win best picture, but no, no, but you don't need to, you understand, Sarah, that if this one best picture, Annie Hall's, uh, reputation among like non-film people is like that movie beat star Wars. So if Turning Point beats Star Wars, it's reputation to be that movie beats Star Wars. I mean, I haven't seen any Hall, but I'm just gonna say I'd be more fine with Turning Point beating Star Wars, but like nothing beats Star Wars. It's Star Wars. But Star Wars didn't win this picture. I know Annie Hall it should have. <laughs> well, knowing what we know now. We yeah, back in time. Goodbye, girl. Historical historical uh, hindsight and I would have voted for I'm the goodbye biased, girl. But... You can't stop me. I'm the goodbye uh, girl. Is Herbert Ross like one of the few directors? Maybe he's the only. Now I'm curious of what the stat is like. They get two films nominated for Best Picture in a year. Which is wild because like I don't think Herbert Ross, like I like this movie a lot. I don't think he's that good of a director. Like I think he. I like the goodbye girl a lot because that's a movie about dancing. It's just, I you mean, know, it's just a rom com. I think he's, I think he's just like one of those neutral work for hire guys. Um, he obviously had an interest in like music and dance and stuff. Cause that's the subject of some of his, a good number of his films, but like, I don't know. Herbert Ross just seems kind of like a void of a director, but like hey. Rob Marshall. I feel like pointing out also the goodbye girl, as much as I keep saying it's a rom-com, the female lead is an ex dancer. So there's still dance involved in that movie too. A lot. So <laughs> all I'm thinking of when you say it is the bye-bye man. I can bye talk about the bye-bye bye man all day. <laughs> well, I think of it because it's got a uh, Richard Dreyfus in it. And you know, whenever I think about Richard Dreyfus, I think about Roy Scheider and I mix them up and I'm just like, Oh, Richard Dreyfus. And, that, and I go, come on guys. All that jazz. Hey, Sarah, what was this nominated for? Wow. Go again. Wow, did you know Richard Dreyfuss was the youngest actor ever to win the category until Adrian Brody won? I found out recently that Richard Dreyfuss is not Julia Louis Dreyfuss' dad. What the fuck? (laughs) So the more you know. Um, anyways, this was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Anne Bancroft, Best Actress for Shirley MacLaine, Best Supporting Actor for Mikhail Baryshnikov. Best Supporting Actress for Leslie Brown. Best Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound. Uh, for me, there's a pretty clear choice here. because I, I, I'm all down for the flashiness, and I think this is actually the most important thing about shooting dance. Uh, but it's the film editing. It's not actually how you shoot the dance, it's how you edit it. I also think that there's a very flashy moment early on in the movie where they're having a conversation, just keeps cutting to like, the next person in the conversation chain. And it just is edited so smoothly. The movie really moves. Um, yeah, even if I wasn't really into it, I can recognize it as a movie of good editing. So, I mean, I say not really into it. I thought it was a fine movie. I just didn't really like, love it, you know? I also can barely remember it three days later. Sorry. I mean, I think that's probably what most people feel like. It seems to be a forgotten movie. Yeah. Um... But yeah, editing. I'm going to give it to Anne Bancroft. Thought she was good in it. Um, mm. 
so much here. Give it to Shirley. Um, Shirley I am I am tempted to give it to Shirley because I think they both deserve it. So, um, and editing was going to be my number one, and usually I just go with my number one no matter what. But since you went editing, I guess I will go cinematography because there is a lot of it looks uh, good. Yeah, and like beyond the dancing, I think there's a lot of good implementation of the camera. I love that scene at the end where they're at the bar at the beginning of their fight, and then as it continues on through the fight, I think it's shot well too. So I'll go cinematography. Nice. Add an on. I uh, so very early on in this podcast, we talked about one nomination a lot. It was a short-lived nomination, and it doesn't apply to most movies. Are you are you seriously going to give it that? As a fan of this movie, you're going to give it that? Okay, cool. I'll let you give your spiel. Sorry. There is no movie that deserves this more. Best Dance Direction goes to the turning point. <laughs> okay. Um, That's valid. Who was the choreographer of this movie? I see. Two different people. Um, so it's not a Kenny Ortega situation where he choreographed it and directed it. You can, you can do the it, remake. Yeah. Kenny do it these days. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm going to give it best costume design. I think that, like, I feel like, and I think that Elvis is like my go-to for this. I feel like costume design is not just about like flashiness. It's also about like cohesion. And when you have, like, an ensemble and you have, like, big groups of people, I think making them all look like, you know, dancers at work is a good skill. So I think that the costume design was good. Well, if you've been paying attention to this podcast, you know, you know what I'm giving it. And that's Best Supporting Actor Daniel Levins. What a performance. I'm even talking about his performance at all. Guy giving 110% to like five lines of dialogue. It's the good stuff, guys. Daniel Levins. I love that character and how confidently wrong he is about everything. Yeah, we can agree that he was wrong, right? Like, he was like, you can't have any emotion whatsoever. It's not about the dancer. Like, excuse me? He is the personification of auteur theory. Much like Herbert Ross should be. Um, okay. Well, that's the turning point. Sorry, Caleb, that we are both sleepy. I, feel I mean, I'm just sleepy because I have COVID. Yeah, I'm, I'm not well, bad I'm sleepy it. because I didn't know where to sit in where I'm at right now, so I'm sitting on a bed, so I'm like, oh, so comfy. I'm a, uh, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not upset. I knew this, ex- this was how it was going to go, and... I remember, like I said, the COVID episode when we did uh, The Moon is Blue, I was I was spaced out that entire time. Okay, do you guys want to order next time? Because you both know it, but the listeners don't. Yes. Sure. Well, t'was the podcast before Christmas and all through the pod. Not a creature was stirring. Not even a Christmas movie. Because normally for our Christmas episode, we watch a Christmas movie. However, on the full list of the Snub Club, there's only one Christmas movie left for us to talk about. And to be real, next Christmas, it's still going to be before we would naturally hit that movie. So we're going to still, we're going to push that one back to next Christmas. Because it really not make any sense for us to jump that far ahead. What we're instead going to do is because the strikes are over, we can promote struck work so they're no longer being struck. Um, We've been promoting struck work this whole time. <laughs> well, I mean, more we're going to do a tie-in episode to a currently released film. If a drum roll, please. At the 58th Academy Awards, that's eight years later, with eleven, also eleven nominations, no wins. The, the tie for holding the record for um, most nominations, no wins, is Steven Spielberg's *The Color Purple*. Now. We're watching this. I just put, we were just sliding this in because, you know, there's the movie remake coming out. It'll be nice to talk about it before we see the remake. If any of us see the remake, I'm not going to assume we're all going to go see the remake, but I feel like I will because I see like every Oscar movie. Um, it would be cool to watch this movie 
before I see the remake because it's considered like a great Spielberg movie. Um, also, I want to be clear: the world, like, this is the first Spielberg movie, no matter what, right? Like, we're not going to be jumping ahead of like our first Spielberg entry into this. Knuckle. This is the first one, no matter what. So yeah, we're gonna watch the color purple for Christmas. I always like when we jump ahead for Christmas, it gives us a little preview of what's to come. Yeah. And you know, with Spielberg, who, who says the eighties more than Spielberg, right? So. Yeah. I, I don't like you with that one. I, I consider more of a nineties guy myself. Oh, I consider him like Raiders. ET. I guess the color purple. I just think of his, uh, his clearly definitive works, BFG ready player one. <laughs> hey, Ready Player One was the first Oppenheimer. I cracked that joke earlier this week because I was talking to someone who was insisting that maybe you, Caleb, you're part of this team. The, the team West Side Story is better than the Fablemans, uh, which I don't really agree with nah. at all. I, I yeah, like West anyway, Side Story, but no. Nah. I mean, we were discussing that, and it, like they made a joke about like Ready Player One. Uh, and I was like, like, oh, you know, I'll just say the name of who I was talking to is Julius and Matt. Um, Matt. It's, listens to the show but i know you guys don't really know him but julius like a, like a couple of years people have been calling fieldman's top 10 spielberg and i was like i already am calling it top 10 spielberg and julius replied to me he's like yeah and i bet ready player one's top three um it's <laughs> like all right well ready player one was the original oppenheimer if you really you know that reading of ready player one where it's like spielberg reckoning with the hell he has brought onto the planet yeah of ip worship I'm like, yeah, I, I, that's an interesting reading. Too bad the movie sucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this yeah. this isn't gonna be our only Spielberg, right? So I can no Spielberg. Okay. I, I I thought I mentioned the Scorsese episode. I mentioned again. Spielberg is tied with Scorsese as the second place member in the snub club. Um, we'll see if Scorsese joins moves up a slot this year. Spielberg doesn't have anything to move up with. I thought Fablemans might have done it, but then Banshees kept that from happening too. So yeah. Okay, I, that's good because I can save my Spielberg th- thoughts. Yeah, yeah, you, you can keep it solely on the color purple, solely on the idea of remaking these things. I say these things like classic movies into musicals or remaking them into new awards bait all over again. Um, actually, very interesting in a way if you think about it, because West we just talked about how West Side Story is a remake, you know, too, and that was Spielberg remaking someone else's movie. Well, I would be curious this. because I feel like the color purple. Is based on a musical, and the musical is based on the book. I don't know if the musical is based well, on the movie. I'll tell you this: I was talking, and we, we'll talk about this more next week. I was talking to my boss. My boss just brought it up. Actually, we we're talking about movies. Um, my boss was like, "I'm so excited to see the new Color Purple. You have to see the new one. This one's just like an update, but with like new actors." And it's like, you know, I saw this article recently by Matt Singer about like why are we in an epidemic now of musical movie musicals refusing the market that they're musicals. And then you get people getting the Mean Girls trailer and just being like, why are they making a shot-by-shot remake of Mean Girls? Now, they shouldn't be adapting the Mean Girls musical into a movie anyway, but at least that's a hook, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> it, It's interesting because I've only seen the trailer once uh, for the new one, but they were heavily promoting that it's produced by Oprah, Quincy Jones, and Spielberg. Oh, so, I'm sorry. I thought you were Mean Girls for a second. Like, oh, what? no, no, no. Okay, but um, yeah, yeah. Well, but Mean Girls also ha- carries over people from, it has Tim Meadows and Tina Fey. So it's like, it also is. Well, that's why people are so confused itself. by it. Like, so, yeah. like, you need to market to musicals so that way people get what it is. But, anyway. um, but yeah, no. So uh, it's interesting, even if it isn't, I don't know. I don't know anything about the musical, but they're definitely drawing ties to the original. Yeah. Yeah, the original is considered a classic. So, and we'll see if we agree or not. I have no opinion. I've never. Have any of you seen it? I've never seen it. It's one no. of my Spielberg, Spielbergs I haven't seen. No, I'll probably. I'll probably. Oh, I'll, de- I'll definitely watch it for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was about to say I'll probably watch it before the new one. But yeah, I definitely will. Yeah, but that will be our Christmas episode. Um, so yeah, you'll be able to listen to it and hear our thoughts on the old movie while you go see the new one if you want to. And if you don't want to see the new one, you just want to hear about the old one. Well, we'll be there for that. So, yeah. Merry Christmas. Have um, a harrowing slavery drama from the 80s. You know? I'm Danny Vincent. Follow me on Letterboxd at Blankman's. You can listen to my other podcast, Looking for the Ocean of Pixar Journey. Um, if you want to somehow go to Bedford, Indiana to support my writing, How Alex Got Her Wings is coming out on 
December 15th and 16th. You can go see it there. Never in Indiana. It's a play about a previously discussed snub club movie. It's a wonderful life. Um, I'm Caleb. You can find me at Caleb from the real world on Instagram and YouTube. And from there, you can find my litany of other podcasts, uh, hot trash unlimited, all new 52 and star Wars therapy. Uh, if you liked me saying the word star Wars in this episode, go check that one out. Um, and of course, thanks to our previously mentioned editor, Joe, Sarah, where can the good people find you? (laughs) Um, well, after this, I'm going to be in my bed. You can find me on Letterbox, S-G-K-E-S-S-G-E-G-E-E-K-Y. You can find me on Instagram, uh, S-G-K-29. You can find The Snub Club on Facebook, The Snub Club, Instagram, Snub Club Podcast, uh, and then X, where we are no longer advertising, Snub Club Pod. Do we have a blue sky? Don't you love that Bob Iger got credit for being... Such a great person in the same interview where he said he needs to stop doing diversity. It's like, hey, he, 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 uh, he, he doesn't advertise on X anymore, so that's great. <laughs> the, the real issue with the Marvels was we didn't have enough executive interference with it. <laughs> <laughs> We're not making sequels anymore. We are making sequels, but not anymore. <laughs> I just also love the whole, like, the, I, I know, Sarah, you're not into Marvel, but the audacity being like, yeah, we need more executives on set. When the one successful, like, Marvel and just Disney movie this year has been financially Guardians 3 where it's obvious no one was on set checking in. <laughs> like it's just like what are you talking about, man? Anyway. Next week, Bob Iger joins us. Bob Iger needs to come on the Pixar <laughs> podcast to talk to me and be like, so I'll be like, so when's Turning Red getting a theatrical release? Who would we rather have on just to like like drag them? Iger or Zaslov? Uh, honestly, Zaslov. Because the, the Zaslov quote from earlier this week where he's like, yeah, I had to make some brave it's tough very decisions brave. shuffling content. Very brave. <laughs> I saw a good tweet about that where it's like, Zaslov being an evil CEO is like very like normal and whatever. But what isn't normal is how he has seemingly no self-awareness about how he sounds like an evil CEO. He constantly will say the most obviously awful shit in interviews where he's like, this must make me look good. No, you sound terrible. We're dating this episode so much. <laughs> See y'all. Bye. Well, David Zaslav. David, people have paid David Zaslav for a couple. Hey, wait, wait, we can't say buy it. And he asked Joe his opinion on David Zaslav. Well, I canceled my HBO subscription when he started removing things, so there's that. All right, whatever. We can leave. All right. Bye. See you next time for the Christmas of color purple. Christmas isn't red or green this year. It's purple. That should have been the tagline for the remake. (laughs)